Canada bans all sales of new handguns after a school shooting south of the border kills more than 19 children and two teachers. The West hybrid war against Russia is Russia winning and a Democrat is acquitted. With these and other stories, I'm Paul Durianzo with the WBAI News for Tuesday, May 31st, 2022. Canada's Prime Minister Justin Trudeau announced a national freeze on handgun sales yesterday in response to two mass shootings in the United States in Buffalo adjoining Canada and at the Robb Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas. We're introducing legislation to implement a national freeze on handgun ownership. What this means is that it will no longer be possible to buy, sell, transfer or import handguns anywhere in Canada. In other words, we're capping the market for handguns. As a further part of this new legislation, we're also fighting gun smuggling and trafficking by increasing maximum criminal penalties and providing more tools for law enforcement to investigate firearm crimes and will require the permanent alteration of long gun magazines so they can never hold more than five rounds. We recognize that the vast majority of gun owners use them safely and in accordance with the law. But other than using firearms for sport shooting and hunting, there is no reason anyone in Canada should need guns in their everyday lives. And Canadians certainly don't need assault-style weapons that were designed to kill the largest number of people in the shortest amount of time. The Liberal government also aims to yank firearms licenses from perpetrators of domestic violence or criminal harassment. And a press release promised a red flag law that would allow judges to force gun owners considered a danger to themselves or others to surrender their firearms. Monday's announcement in Ottawa marks a sharp contrast to the political fallout of the United States from the tragedy in Ovalde. In the wake of the shooting, President Joe Biden pleaded for change, asking, when in God's name are we going to stand up to the gun lobby? Today, White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre said the United States is not prepared to go down Canada's road. So we'll leave it up to other countries uh, to set their policy on gun ownership. The president has made his position clear the United States needs to act. He supports a ban on sale of assault weapons and high-capacity magazines and expanded background checks to keep guns out of the dangerous hands. He does not support a ban on the sale of all handguns. In Canada, there is broad public support for gun control measures, including a complete ban on civilian possession of handguns. In April 2020, a gunman posing as a police officer went on a rampage in the Atlantic, the Atlantic Ocean province of Nova Scotia, killing 22 people in the deadliest mass shooting in Canadian history. The tragedy prompted Trudeau to announce an immediate ban on 1,500 types of what his government calls assault-style weapons. Similar events occurred in Australia, where the government bought up all the mass mass killing of capable weapons in the country as part of a buyback. Ukraine said today Russia, meanwhile, in the war which continues and the violence that continues in Ukraine, that country said today that Russia had taken control of most of the eastern industrial city of Severodonetsk, a bombed out wasteland whose capture Moscow has made the principal objective of its invasion. The assault on the city 
located in Ukraine's Luhansk province, has been met by tough resistance from Ukrainian forces. Even Russian separatists who are trying to turn Luhansk and its neighboring province into a part of Russia, basically, admit that capturing the city has taken longer than expected. Refugee officials say up to 12,000 civilians remain caught in crossfire without sufficient access to water, food, medicine, or electricity. Kyiv says weapons sent by the United States and Europe since the start of the invasion have helped them fend off Russian gains. Meanwhile, the European Union did its part, announcing an agreement today to end all imports by ship of Russian oil. They say that'll amount to cutting Russian imports by 90% by the end of the year. The president of the European Commission is Ursula von der Leyen. I'm very glad that the leaders were able to agree in principle on the six sanctions package. This is very important. Thanks to this, Council should now be able to finalize a ban on almost 90% of all Russian oil imports by the end of the year. This is an important step forward. The remaining 10% on these one, we will soon return to the issue of these remaining 10% pipeline oil. I want to note that other elements in the package are also important. It's the de-swifting of the spare bank. The spare bank is the biggest Russian bank with 37%. This is good that we now de-swift the spare bank. Um, there is a ban on insurance and reinsurance of Russian ships by EU companies, a ban on providing Russian companies with a whole range of business services, and very important, the suspension of broadcasting in the European Union of three further Russian state outlets that were very typically spreading broadly the misinformation that uh, we have witnessed over the last weeks and months. And then we had a very good discussion indeed also on Ukraine. And here I want to emphasize two elements. It's mainly the financial support that Ukraine needs urgently now. As you know, that, as you know um, Ukraine needs by now per month round about 5 billion euros to maintain the basic services that is paying pensions, paying salaries, Seven and a half billion of those are American contributions and one billion in G7 by Germany and grants. But we think that, of course, the European Union has to carry its fair share too. And therefore, we are working on a mechanism to have an extraordinary macrofinancial assistance package of nine billion and my last point, we discussed intensively the question of the reconstruction of Ukraine. And here we all know that we will invest, we will have a large amount of work, colossal, as President Zelensky said, for the reconstruction of Ukraine to create a platform where we can channel all the international initi initiatives to be clear together on the direction of travel, but also to be very clear that investment comes with reform. Reform of the administrative capacity, the judicial independence to fight corruption, to create a conducive environment for the business sector. Here it is important that we really stand together to give Ukraine a fair chance to rise from the ashes. Ursula van der Leyen, she is the head of the European Commission.
The ban was held up by the resistance of EU member Hungary, whose leader, Viktor Orban, is close to Russia's Vladimir Putin and held out to keep oil pipelines to Hungary open. Russia's foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, said on Saturday that Moscow was the target of a total hybrid war by the West, but would withstand sanctions by forging deeper partnerships with China, India, and others. In a speech on the 80th day since Russia invaded Ukraine, Lavrov pointed to the barrage of sanctions imposed by the West in an effort to portray Russia as a target, not the perpetrator of aggression. Collective uh, West has uh, announced a total hybrid war on us. It's difficult to forecast how long this all will last, but it's clear that the consequences will be felt by everybody without exception. What surprises is uh, the caveman's uh, uh, Russophobia explosion, which we witnessed uh, in all the civilized, uh, so-called civilized countries, the political correctness, so any distancy, any rules, and also legal norms have been thrown away way. The cancel culture against everything Russian is being implemented and all hostile actions against our country, uh, including uh, thefts. Uh, our cultural uh, activists, uh, sportsmen, scientists, uh, businessmen, uh, just Russians are being robbed. This company hasn't spared our diplomats. Through a translator, of course, the uh, foreign minister of Russia, Sergei Lavrov, speaking on Saturday. He cited the sanctions, which have included the seizure of nearly half of Russia's $640 billion in foreign reserves, as evidence that no, no one is safe against expropriation and what he called state piracy and of the need for countries to lessen economic reliance on the United States and its allies. And in related news, even as the EU ramps up its sanctions against Russia, State Department spokesperson Ned Price was responding to the question, will Europe stay unified? And can Russia win? Then many eulogies written prematurely when it comes to the unity of the international community in support of Ukraine. We heard this prior to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. We have heard this at a regular cadence ever since. At every step, the alliance and the system of partnerships that the United States has been indispensable in forging in the months that preceded Russia's invasion of Ukraine, but also since the earliest days of this administration, they have defied those expectations. Uh, and I'm not surprised that we continue to, to hear those eulogies once again. The Palestinian attorney general has concluded that Shireen Abu Akla, the reporter who was killed on May 11th this year in Janine on Palestine's West Bank, was killed with a bullet from a mini Ruger gun. Palestinian Attorney General Akram El Khatib says tests show that the bullet that killed Abu Akla was a 5.56 millimeter round fired from a Ruger Mini 14 semi automatic rifle used by the Israeli military. The Mini Ruger is produced by Sturm Ruger and Company, whose headquarters is in Southport, Connecticut, near Fairfield. Abu Akla was a prominent Arab journalist known all over the Middle East who worked for Al Jazeera for 25 years. CNN described her as a household name across the Arab world for her coverage of Israel and the Palestinian territories. The Palestinian foreign minister announced that the Palestinian Authority had formally asked the International Criminal Court to investigate Abu Akla's killing. But State Department spokesperson Price said being a journalist is a dangerous, but he had to admit, necessary job. We stand with journalists around the world who are doing their jobs in situations that sometimes are unfortunately dangerous, where 
They are often in position of putting themselves in dangerous situations to do a job, to fulfill a task that is indispensable. The role of journalists, the role of journalists around the world is in fact an indispensable role. Uh, we will continue with our engagement with other governments, whether they are close friends, whether they are counterparts across the spectrum, to reinforce what should be the inviolable principle of media freedom and the idea that journalists and their ability to do their jobs must not be impeded in any way or in any form. As an aside, Australian journalist and WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange faces possible extradition to the United States from London, where he's been held as the courts deliberate his fate. The journalist faces a lifetime in the U.S. maximum security prison for espionage if he's returned here for trial. And in more international news, former Prime Minister Imran Khan has threatened to hold another protest this week unless new elections are announced in Pakistan. The cricketer turned politician was removed from power last month after a no-confidence vote, which he claims was the result of a U.S.-backed plot. Let the people of Pakistan decide who they want to elect, he told Sky News. The people of this country want one thing, elections. They do not want a foreign-imposed government on where members of our party were bought by a million dollars each who was offered to them to switch sides and then uh, the government was removed and so therefore we feel that rather than someone else imposing a government on our country let the people of this country decide whoever they want uh, to lead them but you were toppled you say by a western conspiracy you called it i think u.s backed regime change. I mean, it's quite a claim. What evidence do you have? Well, as a prime minister, I get a cipher. Cipher is, the, is a secret uh, a message sent by your ambassadors. They are sent to the foreign office. It's like in WikiLeaks, you know, WikiLeaks was when they broke the code. So the secret messages were related to the public. So I get a cipher from my ambassador in the US. It's an official meeting he has with this American undersecretary or whatever, Donald Liu, and me as the prime minister, I'm, leading, I'm reading this cipher, and it says that unless you remove your prime minister through this vote of no confidence, which hadn't been tabled as yet, there will be consequences for Pakistan, and if you remove him, all will be forgiven. This is what me as a prime minister reading this cipher. I am the chief executive. Who, who was he asking to have me removed? The next day, after this meeting, this meeting, official meeting with note takers, with minutes between our ambassador in the Washington and this American official, Donald Liu, next day, the no confidence motion is tabled in our National Assembly. And then members of our party, which I told you were, had offered, were offered these huge sums to switch sides, they start leaving our party, our allies leaving our, leave our party. There was no reason for the government suddenly to be removed. And that is Imran Khan. The U.S. government has denied any intervention. Khan has called for the resignation of Donald Liu, the Assistant Secretary of State for South and Central Asia. Khan had previously alleged that Liu was involved in the foreign conspiracy to topple his government. State Department Principal Deputy Spokesperson Jolena Porter said in April there's absolutely no truth to the allegations. Liu is a Foreign Service officer with more than 30 years of U.S. government service. He served as Deputy Chief of Mission in India former U.S. ambassador to Kyrgyzstan and Albania, and in the U.S. embassy in New Delhi. 
Before his posting in Albania, Lou worked on the Ebola crisis in West Africa as a deputy coordinator for Ebola response in the Department of State. Focusing on relentlessly raising prices, President Biden plotted inflation-fighting strategy today with the chairman of the Federal Reserve with the fate of the economy and his own political prospects increasingly dependent on the actions of the government's central bank. Biden says he hopes to demonstrate to voters that he was attuned to their worries about higher gasoline, grocery, and other prices while insisting an independent Fed will act free from political pressure. He was chairman today and Secretary Yellen to discuss my top priority, and that is addressing inflation in order to transition from historic recovery to a steady growth that works for American families. My plan is to address inflation. It starts with a simple proposition. Respect the Fed. Respect the Fed's independence, which I have done and will continue to do. My job as president is not to uh, nominate, highly, not only nominate highly, highly qualified individuals for that institution, but to give them the space they need to do their job. I'm not going to interfere with their critically important work. The Fed has dual responsibilities. One, full employment, and two, stable prices. Chair Powell and other leaders of the Fed have noted at this moment they have a laser focus on addressing inflation, just like I am. And with a larger complement of board members now confirmed, I know we'll use those tools and monetary policy to address the rising uh, prices for the American people. So I look forward to uh, Chairman Powell's continued leadership at the Fed, and I look forward to the Senate considering my final nominee to the board, uh, Michael Barr, in the near future. And later on in the day, uh, White House Press Secretary Corrine Pierre, uh, pardon me, Corrine Jean Pierre, said that uh, basically the United States is uh, hoping that the Fed can handle the problem on its own. We are at a historic place when it comes to the economy, when it comes to unemployment being at the lowest that we have seen in some time, when it comes to the president creating more jobs in his first term, his first year, than any other president, eight point, more than 8.5 million jobs. Now we're going to a place where it's be, we're going into transition, where we're going to see an economy that's more stable, that's more steady. So that's because of the American Rescue Plan that, we, that the president assigned into law that no Republican signed or voted for, I should say. And all of that work that he's done the first year has led us to a place where uh, there are more jobs out there, more jobs are being created, that we are in a place where we're seeing economic growth. Now, and also, as I've stated, this is an unprecedented time with COVID. This is an unprecedented time with the war. And so that 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 Putin has created and started on Ukraine. And so we have seen that it has shown us uh, since uh, since these past couple of months, since the war, we have seen an uptick on gas prices. Does President Biden take any responsibility for his policies potentially contributing to inflation? When we talk about the gas prices right now, this is indeed Putin's gas hike. This is what we have seen in the most recent months of, of what we've seen at the gas pump. Putin's gas hike. Karine Pierre talking about, uh, pardon me, Karine Jean Pierre earlier today. 
Michael Sussman, a prominent cybersecurity lawyer with ties to Hillary Clinton's presidential campaign, was acquitted today of lying to the FBI in 2016 when he shared a tip about possible connections between Donald Trump and Russia. The verdict was a significant blow to the special counsel, John Durham, who was appointed by the Trump administration three years ago to scour the Trump-Russia investigation for any wrongdoing. But Durham has yet to fulfill expectations from Trump and his supporters that he would uncover and prosecute a deep space, a deep state conspiracy against the former president. Instead, he's developed only two charged cases, the one against Sussman and another against a researcher for the so-called Steele dossier, whose trial is set for later this year. Sussman spoke briefly after the verdict. I told the truth to the FBI, and the jury rec clearly recognized that with their unanimous verdict today. I'm grateful to the members of the jury for their careful and thoughtful service. Despite being falsely accused, I'm relieved that justice ultimately prevailed in my case. As you can imagine, this has been a difficult year for my family and me. But right now, we are just grateful for the love and support of so many during this ordeal, and I'm looking forward to getting back to the work that I love. Finally, I want to thank my legal team at Latham & Watkins, Sean Berkowitz, Michael Bosworth, Natalie Rayo, and Catherine Yao. They're the finest lawyers, and they work tirelessly on my case. Thank you. The case against Sussman centered on odd Internet data that cybersecurity researchers discovered in 2016 after it became public that Russia had hacked Democrats and Trump had encouraged the country to target Clinton's email, Hillary Clinton's emails. The researchers said the data might reflect a covert communications channel using servers for the Trump Organization and Alpha Bank, which has ties to the Kremlin. The FBI briefly looked at the suspicions and dismissed them. On September 19, 2016, Sussman brought those suspicions to a senior FBI official. In charging Sussman with a felony, prosecutors contended that he falsely told the officials that he was not there on behalf of any client, concealing that he was working for both Clinton's campaign and a technology executive who had given him the tip. Durham and prosecutors used court filings and trial testimony to describe how Sussman, while working for a Democratic-linked law firm and logging his time to the Clinton campaign, had been trying to get reporters to write about Alpha Bank's suspicions. But trying to persuade reporters to write about such a suspicion is not a crime. Sussman's guilt or innocence turned on a narrow issue, whether he made a false statement to a senior FBI official at the 2016 meeting by saying he was sharing those suspicions on behalf of no one by himself. Durham used the Sussman case to put forward a larger conspiracy that there was a joint enterprise to essentially frame Trump for collusion with Russia by getting the FBI to investigate the suspicion so reporters would write about it. And finally... In New York City, yesterday, Mayor Eric Adams honored veterans with a speech at a Memorial Day ceremony at the Intrepid Museum on the west side of Manhattan. He praised vets, the police, and even those who battled uprisings against police brutality in the United States. A Pearl Harbor moment. As our national anthem states, bomb burst in air gave proof through the night that our flag was still there. We're not only talking about physical bombs. We're talking about the bombs of uncertainty, of crisis, of turmoil, of uprising. The bombs that could have an impact on how we feel. Just as Pearl Harbor was a significant moment, so too was September 11th, a few miles from here as we watch our center of trade collapse. We reflect on 9-11 and the number of lives we lost, but I reflect on 9-12. We got up. New Yorkers continue to build. 
We were the symbol, symbol and the epicenter of a terrorist act that could have crippled any other nation, but not us. We continue to thrive. And now we're faced with a new challenge called COVID. It's not terrorism, but it brought terror. We lost loved ones and family members to the uncertainty if they were ever returned from a hospital. Our economy took a devastating dive. Many people lost their homes and businesses. The uncertainty hovered over our entire nation. But just as then, we are here now. We will survive. We will survive not only who we have that represent us during foreign wars, but during local uprising. The men and women of the military, law enforcement communities across this country, the prerequisite to our prosperity is public safety and justice. They go together. It is a symbol of who we are as a country. And that was the mayor. And finally, after the hottest day this year, tonight will be warm. Watch for possible late night storms. There will be no repeat performers for the heat Wednesday as temperatures are expected to top out in the low 70s. There will be the threat of afternoon showers and thunderstorms tomorrow. Showers are likely on Wednesday night. Today, it reached almost 97 degrees in New York. And that's from the news for Tuesday, May 31st, 2022. The news produced by Linda Perry. Our engineer is Sean Rhodes from New York City. I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening.